Welcome to this talk from the Canon Do Zen Meditation Center. Located in Mountain View, California, Canon Do's meditation practice is open to the public. For more information or to get in touch with us, you can visit our website at canondo.org. That's K-A-N-N-O-N-D-O dot O-R-G. Good evening, everyone. Our speaker tonight is Vanessa from far across the sea. Do you have a title for your talk tonight, Vanessa? Thank you, Diane. Tonight, um, I'm going to talk about a Zen pilgrimage. A Zen pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I'm trying, I think I have just you and I now on the screen. I'm trying to pin you. I'll take it away. Well, good evening, everybody. So tonight I wanted to do something a little bit different um, to make the most of the format that we're using here still for the moment um, on Zoom, namely a screen where um, there is the, the capacity for a little bit of show and tell. Um, so I want to show and tell some things. Um, several years ago, um, actually while I was pregnant um, with my daughter, I. I somehow got it into my mind that I I wanted to embark on a on a journey that I wanted to do this um, voyage. I had I think for a long time my imagination had been captured by um, the 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 legend that we have in our tradition of the transmission um, of practice and the way that it evolved from India through China into Japan. And so the Zen that, that's been brought over here to the United States or that we practice here in, in our tradition came from Japan, came um, with Shunryu Suzuki uh, from his Soto Zen lineage in Japan. Um, but I've always been very interested in, in that line of, of movement from India through China, um, and especially Chinese Zen, um, which is called Chan. And I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that as I should. Um, and so several years ago, I, I sort of concocted this idea of making a trip, sort of making a, I suppose, a kind of a pilgrimage um, that would take me through some of that history. So I'd like to share that with you tonight um, in any way that it might be inspiring or interesting or informative. Um, so I'm gonna share my screen and see if this works. So can everybody see this little map? Yes. Okay, great. So, um, so the story, um, of our practice, you know, when we, for example, chant the ancestors, 
um, on our in the Saturday morning service. Um, we we start with or we we somewhere near the beginning we feature Shakyamuni Buddha, and we go through the Indian ancestors um, up until Bodhidharma, who then was a legendary figure who supposedly traveled to China and transmitted then, although Buddhism was already um, taking root in China, Bodhidharma transmitted a particular kind of practice, you know, um, seated practice, wall-facing seated practice into China. And then um, the, the sort of main line of transmission into Japan happened with uh, Master Dogen, who traveled to China in the 13th century and um, brought back the, the, the instructions of his own teacher. So here you can see on this map, um, this was a sort of a, a map that I made for myself of some key places that I was curious about visiting. Um, and so it started here in Sarnath in India and in Sarnath is where you have the Deer Park, where Buddha supposedly gave his first sermon um, of the turning of the wheel of the Dharma after he was enlightened to just a, a very small group of, of monks uh, who already knew him in the Deer Park. And, and it's, a, it's a very major place of Buddhist pilgrimage from all traditions nowadays, um, if you're ever able to make it to Sarnath, which is just outside the, the town of Varanasi in India. Um, it's a it's sort of a veritable Buddhist Disneyland. There's there's temples and 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 places from every Buddhist tradition, um, or, or at least a, a, about as many as I could count. Maybe, maybe there are some that are not that not represented, but um it's uh it's really something to see. And then I was sort of interested in coming down to the south of India because that's where Bodhidharma was supposedly from. Um, I visited a couple of places in the south um, where I hoped that I would find some kind of trace of him, but I, I wasn't really, I wasn't able to find very much, but I did visit the, the, the one at the time, and this was in 2014, Zen center that I could um, find in, in all of India. And it was down in um, the state of Tamil Nadu um, near a town called uh, Kodai Canal. And it's a little center called Bodhi Zendo that's run by um, a wonderful teacher who is also a Jesuit priest. He's a Jesuit priest and he has received Dharma transmission and he teaches as a Zen teacher. So this was a wonderful kind of introduction to the trip. But what I really want to concentrate on um, this evening and show you are these places in China um, where I was able to visit uh, some of the older ancestors' temples there, which, uh, so let me see how I can, oh, here we go. Okay, if I just press that, it works. So here's a little closer up. Um, map of some of these spots. So I've tried to make this map to sort of 
some kind of illustration of what's of what's where because I have to say when I when I was starting out on this on this kind of planning and this journey like I really had no idea what was out there you know I sort of I knew that you know there was this incredible history of Zen in China um, I also knew that there had been, you know, a large political upheaval in recent decades, including the Cultural Revolution, which had, from what I knew, shut down a lot of the religious um, and spiritual institutions in the country. So I really didn't know, like, what was there, where anything was, you know, well, um, you know, we learn about the the ancestors, you know, we learn about Bodhidharma going to China. And then, um, you know, we learn about um, the, the different stories of the different teachers um, that existed there from about, you know, the sixth century onwards. But I was like, well, where were they? And, and you know, what were they doing? And how can I sort of, you know, is there a place where I can go and sort of geographically connect with some of these stories? Um, so that was really my idea. And, and I was really thrilled to you know start digging and to find out that well yes it is possible and you know a lot of the um, the ancestors and the teachers that we know about they you know they there are um temples that they founded that are still there today and populated by um monastics and visited and frequented by members of the public so this was a really exciting discovery for me. Um, and here were just a few of the kind of key places that I wanted to show you tonight. So here we have that this is Nanhua here is the temple of the sixth patriarch, Huineng. Mm. Um, and this is very close to Guangzhou, which is close to Hong Kong down here in the south. Um, in China, they have incredibly fast um, bullet trains that can get you you know, 300, 400 kilometers in the space of an hour. So it was very fast and, and quite easy to access some of these places. So that was Nanhua Temple. And then this area here, um, which is in the, da, 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 da. I'm just trying to remember the, the name of the town. Oh my gosh, I didn't write it down. Huang Mei, Huang Mei, that was it. Huang Mei, that this area here was where the, the fourth and fifth patriarch temples are. So this was in the in the Yangtze River, in the basin, um, back in the seventh, sixth and seventh century, seventh century was a very vibrant Zen um area. You know, there, there were temples there. It was where the fourth um ancestor and the fifth ancestor founded their temples. And then Huineng, the sixth ancestor in turn, trained there for a while before he moved down to the south and, and founded his own temple. And then near Shanghai here on the East Coast, um, there's um, Tiang, Tiang Tong Temple, which is where Master Dogen came from Japan when he came to study with his teacher, um, Ruxin, he he came here to Tiangtong Mountain, and there's the temple there that, that is still there and can be visited. Um, and then way over here is a, a probably the most famous Shaolin temple, where supposedly Bodhidharma 
um, resided for a while, and it's the site of uh, Bodhidharma's famous cave, where he's said to have sat for nine years facing the wall. And then there were a couple more up here up in the north towards Beijing, um, Master Joshu's temple, Balen, and the founding temple of Master Linji, who is the founder of the Rinzai lineage. So that just gives you sort of a broad geographic outline. Um, so two, they're really, at the time, at least in 2014, there was very little information out there for me to sort of plan this trip. And, you know, I don't really, you know, I don't speak Mandarin or Cantonese. And I, I, I really, I didn't have any or many friends in China. So it was, it was really a very kind of challenging thing to try and sort of figure out where these places were and how I was going to travel to them. But these two texts were amazing. They really, really helped me. These are Andy Ferguson and Bill Porter, um, Andy Ferguson's book, Tracking Bodhidharma. And he records um, this, you know, journey that he made himself tracing the historical um, places of Bodhidharma, who might have been a completely legendary figure or who might have been a real person. And so he sort of spends the book um, investigating that question. Um, really wonderful book. And then Bill Porter's Zen Baggage. And Bill Porter, you know, also who is known for being somebody who has um, been very active in reviving a lot of the Chinese Zen tradition um, for Westerners. Um, he, you know, he's he's made many trips in China. And so he documents um, a lot of the places that he went to. So it was wonderfully, wonderfully informative and helpful, um, these two books. And I was actually, I think, in touch personally with um, Andy Ferguson, who gave me a few leads in the country too. So that was very helpful. So I'll show you a, a few pictures from some of the temples. Um, so the first one that I visited is, or the first one that I want to show you is Nanhua, which was um, founded by Huineng in the sixth, sixth, and we'll see the seventh century. Um, so one of the things that really struck me about visiting the temples in China is how busy they were with um, the activities of lay people who are visiting. You know, there were really so many people coming in um, and visiting. As here you can see um, they had lots and lots of copies of like pamphlets and booklets for people to pick up copies of the Platform Sutra um, which is the, the famous text that is attributed to the sixth ancestor. Um, a fun fact is that it's the only text that we use in the Mahayana tradition that is um, attributed the status of a sutra that doesn't record the words of the Buddha. So um, it's really a very, a very kind of key text for us in the Mahayana tradition, the Platform Sutra. Um, and so here they, they have copies in different languages. They Somebody gifted me a copy of it in English. 
here. Um, and so what struck me was, you know, people would come and come and light incense and offer incense at the altar, which is right at the, at the beginning of the temple complex. And as you can see that, I don't know if you can see on this picture, but there was so much that initially people would put the incense um, inside this receptacle. And then it was creating so much ash and dust that a lady would come around with a broom and sweep it all up into these piles. Um, as you can see, like around the receptacle, and then they ran out of space in here. So people would come and put candles and incense actually in, in the piles of ashes. I mean, there was just so many um, that, you know, they, they just had to keep expanding to accommodate that. So that was really impactful for me to see that. Um, so some of the images I'm just going to go through, these are some things that I, you know, I noticed just being around the temple. Um, these are some of the monastics from the temple engaging. It looks, it's kind of, at first I thought they were sitting around a table eating, but actually they were either studying or kind of engaged in, in, a chant, in chanting or in some sort of ceremony, but sat around the table. And these are just some more images from the ceremonies that were going on there at the time. So I hope that maybe we can upload some of these photos to the podcast page if anybody is listening to the podcast can engage with these pictures. So this blew me away. <laughs> um, so Huineng, the, the sixth ancestor, you know, who, who lived in the sixth and seventh century. So about 1,300 years ago, who founded the temple. He's still there. He's still at the temple. So after the, the legend has it, or the story goes that he passed away in Zazen, in the, in the Zazen posture and that his body was taken and it was preserved. Um, and so that supposedly the, the preserved body of the sixth ancestor still sits in the temple, um, in, the, in this hall called the Patriarch's Hall, which is all the way up the hill. And it's sort of inside this glass box. Um, you can't get too close to it. It's, it's obviously preserved from the light but um, I was able to sort of see it from a distance and, and, and sort of just see some details like the eye socket and his cheek, which was, I, I don't know. I don't know how to explain the feeling that I had, but, you know, it's sort of chilling in some way, you know, very much kind of gave me goosebumps. This notion that, you know, this, this was this person who lived 1300 years ago and um and he's been preserved and his body's there and there's a story that during the cultural revolution um that the the monastery was was invaded by the the communist um forces of the communist army and they they actually took his body and they they sort of cut into it and they paraded it through the the streets of the town and that it, it got very damaged because of that. And it lost, I think he lost, the limbs came off or something. And, and then it was taken back 
to the monastery afterwards and, and repaired and fixed. And so now, even though it's in a very delicate state, they've still managed to preserve it there. So, so that was something very unexpected, very surprising. Um, and then I think another thing that just really struck me about this temple and so many of the other ones um, that I did visit in China was just the scope of them, um, just how absolutely enormous they were. And just to give you some idea, um, you know, looking at the map like of the complex of the different buildings that are named, there is the the, the there's a, two sets of entrance gates. Like you, that's very normal in Chinese and Japanese um, temples. And then there's like the Hall of the Heavenly Kings the memorial hall for monks, the memorial hall for lay people, the life prolonging hall, the hall of Sangharama and Bodhisattva, the vegetarian hall, the reception hall, the abbot's reception hall, the meditation hall, the patriarchal hall or the patriarch's hall where um, Huining's body is sat, um, the memorial hall of Tripitaka Dharma master Jnana, by Sajya, the exhibition hall, the abbot's quarters, um, the worry-free guest rooms, and then <laughs> slightly off campus. I know, I, I wish I'd visited those. Um, there was a Buddhist college, um, a meditation hall for lay people, and then an expansive forest, just then just full of small, lots of small pavilions, you know, where people would come and light incense and different things so astounding in its scope so the next um place to show you is sisu um which is as i showed sort of in that very central part of the country um in the yangtze river basin and what's really interesting about sisu temple that was founded by the fourth patriarch um master daoshin is that it was really in some ways the first zen temple so up until then, like the, the tradition or the monastic tradition um, had sort of much more revolved around monks going out and, um, you know, begging for alms um, and, and, and sort of, and being a little, how can I say, like a little nomadic or, you know, not, not being a little homeless in, in the way that they lived. And Daoshin, um, was somebody who had, you know, an idea that actually, you know, it could be a little different. I think in some ways that monastic life was challenging as monks kind of moved away from the city and moved into more rural areas and those communities grew and maybe it was even just harder for them to be able to live off, you know, donations from local villages. So the idea was that they would, you know, have be able to somehow acquire their own space, their own land, um, and then work that land and produce their own food. And so, you know, this, this kind of notion of um, a day without work is a day without food was really started um, with Master Daoshin's um, temple here, this temple in Sisu in Huangmei. And then his his disciple or you know who um took over from him was master hongren the fifth ancestor and he built his temple very close by to his master's temple so 
<clears throat> in Huangmei, there's these two mountains, a Western and Eastern mountain. And the fourth ancestor built his temple on the Western mountain and the fifth one built his temple on the Eastern mountain. So they're very close together. Um, so this is the fourth ancestor's temple. And I had the um, absolute amazing luck of meeting um, this wonderful monk um, whose name translates, or he, that he asked me to call him Bridge. Uh, his, his name translated as Bridge. And um, up until that point, I'd really struggled with uh, the language. I, I just don't, you know, I don't speak any Mandarin or I'd been in the South. So I hadn't, you know, there was Cantonese spoken there. And I'd, I, was, I was really finding it hard to communicate with people. And then I was at the train station in Huangmei coming into this area. And uh, there was just a crowd of people at the outside of the train station. And I was trying to find a, a taxi or, you know, somebody who could help me. And it was literally as though the crowd parted. And I saw a monk, This I saw this man standing there just like this, just sort of facing me in his gray robes. And, and, he, and he walked towards me and he said, can I help you in English? And, and I, I was absolutely blown away. And I said, well, you know, yes. And I'm, I'm here to visit these, these Zen temples. And, and he, then he in turn was blown away because he said, oh, you know, wasn't expecting that. And, and so we, he just dropped everything that he was doing and spent the next um, three days just kind of looking after me and being my guide. And he, um, he himself practiced at a, at a different temple. It wasn't the fourth or fifth ancestor's temple. He, he had another temple. There's lots of temples in the area. And he, so he took me to where he practiced and he introduced me to his family and we had lunch with his mom. And, and then he organized for me to actually stay at the temples as well, which was just a huge privilege. So this is this is um, when he was taking me around Sizu Temple, the fourth ancestor's temple. So here you can see the temple gate, um, and there's a lovely, very old bridge here um, that leads into it. This is the stupa that commemorates the fourth ancestor Daoshen. Um, it's just a little bit outside of the temple, and you can see on this picture, you know how it's really just housed in this beautiful countryside in the greenery. Um, very, very beautiful spot. So when we got there and we were walking around this, this temple, I was so charmed by it that I, I said to him, you know, would it be possible for me to stay here? Um, and he arranged that for me. So I ended up staying um, for two days, which meant that I didn't have time to visit the fifth ancestors temple, but it, it was worth it. Um, I love these sort of long corridors with the round doors, the round doorways that you can see. And, and this, this image shows the meditation hall in the temple. And just beautiful, beautiful situation of architecture and within the, the greenery of the mountains. Really lovely. So how are we for time? Okay, Tiang Tong. Um, so Tiang Tong is, like I mentioned, the temple where uh, Master Dogen, when he came from Japan, this is where he landed. And um, 
he he was keen to you know reconnect with Chinese Zen himself like he he had this notion that um he would find something kind of original about Zen teaching in China and so he he sort of followed that instinct and and landed at Tiantong Mountain and so the temple um on the mountain where he stayed is still there. I mean, I, I suppose none of these places have the original architecture they would have had centuries ago. I think that, you know, they've they've probably been built and rebuilt many times since then, but they've stayed on the same place, you know, and that, that spirit has kind of remained. Um, so the day I visited Tiantong was a very, very rainy day, which meant that there was there was just nobody there. I felt like I had the whole temple to myself. It was very beautiful. Um, this picture is of one of the, the heavenly kings. Um, maybe you know about this, uh, but at the entrance of like Chinese and Japanese temples, they often have these like four guardians um, who are there to protect the sanctity of practice, the sanctity of the, of the temple. And this particular one is Virudaka, um, he guards the, so each of them guards a, di a, a direction of the compass. Um, Virudaka guards the south. Um, and in his, you know, he's he's the ruler of the wind. He brandishes a sword to protect the Dharma. And he causes the good growth of roots. And he's traditionally always blue. And he's very, very large. I don't know if that this photo can really communicate that, but they're quite, it's quite um, impressive to sort of walk under these sort of huge giant statues of these guardians um, that stand at the front of the temple. And then this is another detail that I, I just, I loved to see um, throughout all of the temples is the, 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 the normal kind of everyday things that the monastics who live in the temple do, like washing their clothes. So, you know, pretty much I, I would I would always sort of find myself going off the beaten track, like off the main kind of route of the temple into the little side, side alleys and, and areas. And there, you know, I would find the most interesting things of the monks just, you know, doing their cleaning, washing their clothes, boiling boiling oil once I, I could never figure out why that was so um uh I, yeah there was something for me very kind of warming and calming about witnessing um the kinds of things that the that the monastics would do somebody was just drying their socks here on a wall <laughs> I thought that was great it was a very wet day and then this was um, an area which I suppose was either the old kitchens. It wasn't in use at the time that I was there, but maybe it's something that's reserved for when they have big events at the temple. But this is a cauldron um, in one of the kitchen rooms. And I put this little, I was carrying this little toy pig around with me. I just put him there for perspective, but I can't tell you how big this cauldron looked like a kind of a jacuzzi. Like I kind of figured you could fit an entire football team inside it. It was huge which you know, really gave me some idea of the, just the size of the events that they must cater to. 
sometimes, you know, at the temple or just, you know, the number of monks that are there, um, maybe in a practice period, but just that, you know, the size of a dish that would need to be made at times. So very beautiful. And then Shaolin, and I'll probably, maybe I'll just end with this one today. I don't want to um, stretch it out for too long, but I'll, I'll tell you about Shaolin. Um, Shaolin, most people have heard of um, outside of China because Shaolin is mostly famous for the Kung Fu nowadays and the, and the Shaolin monks who go and train at the temple. And um, the kind of Kung Fu that they do is very, very sort of energetic and acrobatic almost. Um, it's a very impressive kind of, kind of martial art. Um, so the legend goes that Bodhidharma um, himself passed through that region um, when he was in China and that he um, meditated for nine years in a cave um, like just up the hill a little bit from the temple. So I was, so I was interested, you know, in any case, I was interested to, to visit Shaolin, but sort of in the steps of Bodhidharma made it even more interesting. So when you go to Shaolin, if you go, um, it's, it's a very easy, not all of the temples are so easy to stay at, or, you know, they, they have to sort of be arranged. And I think that because I was a practitioner and I went with my Rakasu, it was easier for me to, stay at some of the other temples um but at, at Shaolin it's much more of a tourist destination in general and outside um of the temple itself there's like a little village like a little complex with lots of guest houses and and you can very easily stay there as a tourist um for as long as you like and so this was um wonderful I had a little room in a guest house there and at about very early in the morning I think it must have been five or six o'clock I could hear these sort of bangs and shouts coming from outside. And I looked out of my window and um, the, the morning Kung Fu lesson had already started. And there were all these young, young kids outside, mostly boys, um, these young boys, you know, just going through their Kung Fu motions with their teacher. Um, and I thought this was wonderful. And so there's in that little village, there's actually several little schools and I, I called it a bit like a sort of a Hogwarts to take the Harry Potter reference a Hogwarts for for Kung Fu Kung Fu kids because it, it really there were so so many of them in this village um you know all of them studying Kung Fu which was really great so the the, the Shaolin temple itself um i was visually a lot like the other ones so I, I've decided instead to show you photos of my little journey up to Bodhidharma's cave. And I have to say that I think in, in many ways, this really was the highlight of the journey for me. Um, I think there's a certain, uh, almost a certain kind of romance, like connected with the image of Bodhidharma's cave for me. Um, you know, it's a very strong, story a very strong legend in our tradition and it just didn't even occur to me that there would be an actual place that it would be that that story would be connected to um 
you know, until I came on this trip and until I did this research. Um, so leaving the temple, it was a very rainy day. Um, you know, I was about five months pregnant. <laughs> I was told that this was a four kilometer hike each way um, with an ascent of about a thousand steps going up into the hills. So I took this very, very slowly. I was on my own. Um, I was a little wobbly on my legs. My, my energy was a little different, you know, due to being pregnant, but um, it was incredible. Like I, you know, starting as you can see on these pictures that the, the steps just sort of led up into the clouds. It was very kind of mysterious to follow this path. And at the top of it, sure enough, there, there was a cave and this is the entrance to the cave. Um, you can see that since then it's, it's they've built like um, a wall. There's a little wall here to sort of mark it and a, um, a sign. There's a little shrine outside where people come and they light incense. And this was the wonderful, wonderful man who, who's like the gatekeeper to Bodhidharma's cave. He was so warm and friendly and we had no we had no language in common but he just he took my hands and he just you know he smiled at me and he just led me inside he was really lovely and and inside you know it's a very small space there's the cave i don't think i don't have any photos of the inside which makes me think i'm it would probably not allowed to take pictures inside um but this was the entrance anyway that you could see that was kind of up in the clouds of Bodhidharma's cave. And this was the sign that was outside that gave some information. Um, the cave is seven meters in depth and three meters in width. According to one folk story, Bodhidharma, the primary ancestor of Zen, used to face the wall and meditate here for nine years, gave Zen lessons. Thereby, the cavern is also called the place where the primary ancestor meditates, Dharma cave, or the cavern where Dharma faced the wall and meditate by later generations. So, so I think in the interest of time, I'll leave it there. There was a, there was a couple of other temples, um, but I think I'm I'm a little talked out right now. Um, so yeah, just to, to wrap it up, um, I used the word pilgrimage earlier, um, which I think resonated for me in terms of really what that journey was about. Um, at one point I, I met this young man at one of the temples in, in China and, and he was very interested in why I was there and and what I was doing. And, you know, I just said, I'm, you know, I'm just visiting these places. And um, he's like, but you don't, you don't speak, you know, Mandarin, you can't really talk to people, you know, it's, it, it must be hard, you can't really connect in a full way. And I was like, it's true, you know, I can't, I'm just here, I'm on my own, I'm sort of tootling about. <laughs> and I think in many ways, like I, I really didn't, you know, I didn't fully have, um, um, how can I say, like a, a sort of an articulated 
understanding of you know what this was you know like i'm doing this research trip for x you know it wasn't like that it was just sort of like well what happens if i go out there and you know what's out there and how will it feel to be there um and i think that's sort of the spirit of a pilgrimage in some ways um i just i i'd like to leave you with um a little reflection on pilgrimage that i found that um actually by by john muir who was talking about hiking he was talking about hiking and where he says hiking i think i'd like to say you know the word like vacationing or something right he says i don't like the word hiking or the thing he said people instead of hiking you, you should use the word sauntering sauntering in the mountains, not hiking. He says, because do you know the origin of the word saunter? He says, it's a beautiful word. Um, back in the middle ages, people used to go on pilgrimages to the Holy Land. And when they passed through the villages, um, people would ask them where they were going and they would reply in French, à la Sainte-Terre, à la sainte uh, Sant means sort of saintly, and terre means land. So to the holy land, to the Saint Terre, Saint Terre Sainte. Um, so they began to be known as Saint Terres or Saunterers. Um, so then he reflects that the, the mountains that he walked in were the holy land to him, and that sauntering reverently um, would be the way to move through. So. Thank you so much for your attention. Um, I think we still have about 20 minutes till the end of the session. So I don't know if anybody has any questions. Oh, Sharmila, I see your hand go Thank up. Thank you so much. It was so engaging. It was very engaging. Uh, and what you did was Buddha Dhamma Yatra, which is basically the pilgrimage so mm. you're so lucky uh, many people long to do those you know all temples it's really nice buddha dhamma yatra so i didn't know that you had done that so it's really really nice to see and the pictures i almost had tears in my eyes i don't know oh. why hmm shamila what does yatra mean uh, yatra is journey. Journey. And Dhamma Yatra. Dhamma is better, basically Dharma. Mm -hmm. A lot of monks following uh, mindfulness, kindness. Ah, I want to a... do this someday. Take oh. me with you. you <laughs> <laughs> I wish it for you. <laughs> for sure. It's a great it's a privilege it's really a privilege to be able to take the time that the whole journey in total took two months for me and and i think that i had a very special urgency because i was pregnant and i knew that i had this notion that my life was going to change very dramatically and that i probably would not have the freedom or the opportunity to take that kind of time for myself again for many years and i was right <laughs> so i'm glad that um I'm glad that I was able to do it when I did. And um, thank you for thank you for teaching us this word, Buddha Dharma Yatra. It's beautiful. 
Yeah, we um, should have a kind of uh, together travel one day uh, thank you so much wonderful thank you and lovely to see you Uma hi Vanessa how are hi, you hi. good thank you so I have a two-part question one is um I'm glad that you ended it at the cave. Um, I'll get to that. But um, one of the things that I want to ask you was now that if you, since you have gone to all those places and if you close your eyes and feel those places, what is the feeling that comes back to you? What is the deeper feeling that you have of all those places? Mm, that's such a wonderful question. You know, everyone was very different. Um, it very you know, puts it together and gels it for you that, you know, I came back and, you know, it, because these things actually go and help our practice. And that's why I wanted to know when people mm -hmm. do these things. So that was one question. And do you feel that there is a cave inside of all of us that we can go into just like the Bodhidharma did? Mm. A quiet place? The refuge. Yeah. The refuge. Yeah. Really, you know, I think the image of the cave at the top of the mountain, especially, you know, that there's kind of, that there was sort of a journey involved that there's a, an ascent that there was this ascent involved mm -hmm. um that there's a it's, it's really a beautiful metaphor and on this particular ascent also i didn't mention this but there was a there was a a place about three quarters of the way up um that it was almost like a mini cave another one where a lady mm -hmm. was there and she'd set up like a little for want of a better word, gift store, <laughs> but it was unlike any gift store I'd ever seen. It was, it was, it was like it was like an Aladdin's cave, and it was just full of these like little statues and incense and, um, but it, it kind of just looked like she just wrapped everything up in a big cloth and brought it there. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't, it definitely wasn't official. I don't think it was yeah. sort of you yeah. know sponsored by the Shaolin Temple or anything, and. But she was, it, she was sort of there as this like beacon of encouragement. You know, she was this wonderfully warm person who was kind of like, who just appeared and she was like, you're nearly there, you know, keep going. It's, you're almost at the top, like, and the cave is there. And, and the cave, you know, I think of Bodhidharma in the cave, I think of taking refuge. And then I think there's the cave and then there's also, you know, there's other images like, the grass hut, mm -hmm. you know, which is not so, maybe not so dark, maybe not so cold, um, you know, a little less, uh, it's more sort of temporary mm -hmm. in, in its, um, in its nature. Mm -hmm. So there's both, you know, there's both. Mm -hmm. the, the cave is very protective, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's strong, hard, it's a part of the mountain. Mm -hmm. Um, we, we, we all have access to refuge. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, you answered my question by saying that, you know, it's encouragement. She was encouraging you. So it was all an encouraging experience. Mm. You're almost there. And, you know, we all have the cave. So you just answered mm. the question. There you go. Thank you. Exactly. Thank you. And, and to meet this wonderful person with a Ronaldinho hat at the top, you know, who... That's so sweet. He had such a sweet smile, though. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, he really was wonderful. So, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Megan. Did you meditate while you were at these temples? Did you meditate on your journey? That's a great question. I was, it was a koan for me, Megan, to, to get to meditate at any places. It, it, it was hard to do and, and I couldn't understand why. So what happened was that the very first place, the very first temple that I visited in China was actually in the town of Guangzhou down in the south. It was supposed to be the town where Bodhidharma originally landed when he came to the country. And so there's a little temple there that sort of commemorates that. And, you know, I was very sort of fresh and green when I first arrived there. And I thought, oh, I'm at a temple. I'm going to find the meditation hall and I will go and sit. And so... And so I did, I found the meditation hall and it was empty. And so I just let myself in and, and I went and I, I started to sit. And then about, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes in, some, some monks came in and, and they just really were not happy with me being there at all. <laughs> and it seemed like they were, they needed, they really, they were trying to clear me out as quickly as possible because I think there was about to be an event there or something was going to happen or people were coming in or maybe it was, you know, their meditation time. Um, but yeah, it was, it was funny because I sort of got shooed out and then going forward, I, you know, I tried to access the different meditation halls in different places and they were usually locked or closed. And then the places where I stayed overnight, I would, I would say, well, you know, what time is the meditation? You know, can I join the meditation? Like I assumed there would be a meditation in the morning. And I don't know if it was just the time of year that I was there, or I just, you know, maybe I hit on rest days or something, but then there wasn't, there never was. Oh. Um, and I never quite got to the bottom of it. The, the temples, when I stayed the night, what they would do is they would wake up very early in the morning and go straight into ceremony, go straight into ritual. So they would open up the, the ceremony space and there would be bells and drums and chanting. Um, and so that I could go and be there and witness that. Um, but I, I, didn't, I didn't sit with a group in China. I um yeah at, at, at the temple with where Master Dogen was at Tiantong there there I remember trying to find their meditation hall and it was locked but they had another room that was marked the wall the wall facing it was called something like that the wall facing room or the wall facing sitting room and I thought huh <laughs> maybe you know maybe I'll take a look in there and it was a very bizarre sort of room where they had this chant box I don't know if you know these um they use them quite a lot in oh bye Giuseppe bye-bye 
Giuseppe's leaving us. It's meditation time. Um, they have these little chant boxes playing that just that are just chanting sutras. Um, so they had one in the room that was just playing a chant. And then they had these sort of couches that lined the outside of the room, but they were all facing inwards. They weren't facing the wall <laughs> as per the room's name. So I just, I, you know, I would just go in there and spend some time and, you know, sit by myself. But um, yes, unfortunately, I, I didn't have that experience <laughs> in China. Thank you. <laughs> it wasn't through lack of trying. <laughs> Diane. Thank you, Vanessa. That was beautiful to go on that journey with you. It was lovely. Um, I guess you've just answered one of my questions, which apparently lay people do not sit in in China or in India. Um, and then the other question is about the cultural revolution, the fact that these temples are so intact and so vital, it's just surprising because I thought so many things were destroyed and, and people were killed if they, I, I wonder where they all were during that time that they continued mm -hmm. the practice. Right, I'm, you know, I'm not um, a historian and I haven't, I haven't, you know, delved personally so much into this story. Those two books, especially Bill Porter's book, um, has a lot more information in it for, for those interested. Like that would be a great place to, to start. Um, I, I was also really interested in this question. And when I had my English speaking guide, Bridge, showing me around, I was very lucky that he was able to you know, tell me some stories and answer some questions. Um, he talked a lot about his master, his teacher, who'd recently passed away when I met him back in 2014. And he, he told me that his teacher during the Cultural Revolution had, you know, whichever temple it was that he'd been living at and practicing at was closed down and that he by force or not, I don't know, maybe by choice, um, went to then just went into labor and worked in the fields, you know, worked as a farmer, basically, you know, dis disrobed. He had no more role um, as a monk or a teacher during that period. Um, and then um, there was, um, I suppose, when when they moved, when they transitioned into a, another period after the revolution, when um, it was more permissible, uh, the temple started to reopen, you know, slowly, and 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 the people returned, and it seemed that it that the practice seems to attract a lot of young people mm. in the country. I mean, that's what I know. I was really struck by um, the demographic of the monastic community living in the temples it was very young. Um, I would say mostly, you know, young men in their 20s and 30s, nunneries also. Yeah. I did mention that, but in Huangmei, um, in the area of the fourth and fifth ancestors temples, um, as, as we toured around, we actually visited a nunnery as well. Um, uh, and it was, yeah, you know, a big, 
nunnery with lots of nuns living there. So that was very encouraging. And the, the, the temples were in very good condition. Um, you know, there seemed like obviously some funding had gone into maintaining them. And I don't know, I can't tell you where that funding comes from. Like, I, I don't know. Um, all I do know is that at, at Bridges Temple, which was called the Lao Tzu Temple, um, there was a lot of building going on at the time. Like you could actually see things in progress being built. And I asked him, oh, you know, is this, so is it the government that gives the money for this? Like, you know, and he said, no, it's, he said private, they said private donors, private donors. <laughs> but that was as much as I understood. Thank you. So, yeah. Vanessa? Dan. Hey, this is Dan. Hi. Is this also the trip that you visited the Japanese teacher with your husband, I think? Yeah. So okay, yeah, you, you talked about that at, at, with a different focus in a past talk. I was just wondering if it's they were really, connected. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Then I carried on to Japan after yeah. China and visited... Um, Master Kaizen's original Sojiji temple mm. and a Heiji and yeah and um Osho-san dear a dear teacher living in the living in the woods mm. <laughs> thank you nice talk thank you I wonder why they get the uh, long we're trying to keep preserve the body of the monk. Can you say that again, Shamila? I didn't hear. Yeah, I wonder why they why they kept the thousand years body of the monk, but generally it is uh, it's cremated. But mm. we're trying to preserve it, and there was so much torture, right? Like they like you said. And then we had to rebuild it and stuff. I wonder what, what is the significance of preserving. Mm. Right. Yeah. I wish I could. I wish I could speak to that in more detail. I know that he's. I know. I think there was a tradition of preserving the bodies of of great monks or great teachers, holy people. I don't think he's even the only um, body at that temple that's been preserved. I think there are others as well. Um, I think there was. I, I don't know. I, I don't want to to guess or sort of overlay my own like assumptions as to why it was done. But um, I think that for sure there was a tradition around doing that at the time. Um, but I think in, in maybe now in, in my own sort of cultural context, you know, it gave me a very specific feeling and obviously the first as, as a zen practitioner you know the first thing i think is like but but you know what about our our transience you know what about all life is change you know what why would we work to preserve a dead body um um but i'm coming from a very different you know cultural historical moment so i think they do preserve like i went to goa in india there was a basilica church the saint xavier's body was preserved mm. so it's just not uh buddhism or, uh, or anything like that mm -hmm. so there's yeah every year a procession that is carried and they go and keep for sure in the christian tradition yeah i think there's there's lots of kind of 
tradition around relics. And they still have it. They have kept it in the glass basket and you can mm -hmm. see it in the church. Mm -hmm. Time. Umar's pointing at his watch. It's nine o'clock. Oh. Or pointing at his wrist. Thank yes. you so much, yeah. everybody. Thank you. This talk was brought to you by the Canando Zen Meditation Center in Mountain View, California. For more information or to support this podcast, go to canando.org. That's K-A-N-N-O-N-D-O dot O-R-G.